0: You know, fear is a powerful emotion. And it's one of those emotions we've all dealt with, right? Every single one of us have experienced some form of fear. We've all gone through fear. Maybe it's fear of the unknown. Maybe it's fear of loss, fear of pain, fear of death. I mean, over the last uh, year, we've been experiencing a lot of fear Based on this pandemic that we've been going through, and a lot of people have been paralyzed by fear because what fear does to us is is this powerful emotion that it does one of two things it either motivates us to act or fear paralyzes us and today in this story, as we continue the gospel of Mark we're going to see two examples of fear and let me give you a little context of what's going on in this story you see this this is uh, after Jesus has been teaching, uh, a long day of teaching, which started in verse 1 of Mark chapter 4. Jesus gets to this end, end of this day, this exhausting day of teaching, and he's, he, he's tired. He's desiring to get away from the crowd, to get away from the people that have been crowding in on him. And so he tells his disciples, he goes, guys, let's go to the other side of the lake, other side of the Sea of Galilee. And so they get in the boats and they head off, uh, across the sea of galilee now i don't know about you but have you ever had one of those days where you're just totally exhausted and you get home and there is nothing like sitting down on the couch and just going Whoa. you ever been there well that's what jesus does he gets in the boat takes a deep breath and rest but the calm of that moment doesn't last very long because what we're going to see today is scripture is going to show us that suddenly out of nowhere this huge life-threatening storm comes upon the sea of galilee It's very similar to our lives isn't it like life will be going on great life will be happening and things will be going perfect and you're like man this life couldn't get better and then what happens bam just like that a storm pops up could be your spouse coming to you and say listen I'm done I want a divorce this is over could be a doctor walking in the room and diagnosing you with cancer or some other terminal illness it could be the loss of a job that you've poured your life into over and over and over again year after year and all of a sudden it's gone could be the 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 pain and suffering that we go through. It could be the fact that you, the, that you failed a test that you've studied for, if you're a student and, you've, and you've, you've worked hard and diligently, and then all of a sudden you failed. It could be the loss of a, a breakup of a boyfriend or a girlfriend. I mean, we've all faced those storms, right? We've all had those moments where life seems to be going great, and then all of a sudden, this storm happens out of nowhere. Like, where did this come from? Like, things are going so great. And now, all of a sudden, it's all gone. I've heard it said that there are three types of people, and there are three types of people in this room, and three types of people that are watching online. Either right now you are go, you are in the middle of a storm, like life is pounding you right now, or you've just come out of a storm, and you're you're like Jesus in that boat, just going because <gasps> you just came out of the storm, or you're the third group, and you're about to go into a storm. And the reality is, in life, storms are going to happen. Storms are coming, and the the thing about this story is, this is an incredibly familiar story. And many of you, once we read it, you'll be like, "Oh yeah, I've heard this story before. I know this story. I've 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 heard this story taught before." Here's the here's the reality of this story. It is often one of the most misapplied and 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 misunderstood stories in Scripture. Because here here's what the story's not about. This story is not about jesus rescuing you from the storm that's not what it's about at all and it's not even about jesus being with you in the storm although those two things are true jesus can rescue you and jesus is with you those things are true but that's not what this story is about this story in order to understand the story we have to go back to mark chapter 1 verse 1 And the purpose of Mark writing this gospel, he says this, this is why I'm writing this gospel, because it is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The purpose, the reason Mark wrote the gospel is so that you and I and those reading it can know and understand who Jesus is while it is true that Jesus can rescue, from the, rescue you from storms, while it is true that Jesus is with you in the midst of storms, the purpose of this story being in this gospel is so that you and I will understand and grasp who Jesus is. Because Jesus is God. He is sovereign. He is all-powerful. He is the creator and the sustainer of the universe. And Mark is writing this and including this story in this gospel so that you and I can understand that, so that we can grasp it. It's very similar to what John said in his gospel. In John chapter 1, verse 1, John said this, In the beginning was the Word, and that Word is Jesus. And he says, And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's what John says, and then he goes on to say in verse two, he was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and with and, and without him, anything made was not that was made. So basically saying, listen, Jesus was there at the beginning. He is he is God, and everything that is created was created by Jesus. It also echoes echoes what. What uh, Paul wrote in the, in, the, in the book of Colossians, in beginning in chapter 1, he says this, He, speaking of Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him, by Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for him and then verse 17 he says and he that is jesus is before all things and in him all things hold together so i want you to have those two passages of scripture john 1 and colossians 1 in mind as we look at this story from Mark chapter 4, beginning in verse 35, if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. If you have an app, you can open the, the app up to, to this passage. Or if you don't have either, you can read along uh, on the screens uh, in front of you. But here's, the, here's what it says, and this is the story that happens uh, after Jesus had been teaching all day long. And on that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. So that other boats, that probably means other people that were disciples of Jesus. Not the twelve, but there were other people that were following him, so they go along as well. And verse 37, And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But Jesus was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they, the disciples, woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? Do you not care that we're going to die? And he woke up, and he rebuked the wind, and he said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Why have you still... No faith. And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Now, here's what you need to understand. In this moment, the disciples are dealing with a handful of things. First of all, they're dealing with this life threatening storm. Now, this must have been a massive storm to scare these disciples to death because the majority of the disciples were fishermen. They had no doubt experienced storms on the Sea of Galilee over and over and over again. But this storm was different. This storm was massive. This storm was threatening their lives. And they said that the water was beginning to fill the boat. It was just coming over the bow of the boat. It was filling the boat. And these disciples were scared to death. So they're dealing with this massive storm, which is, which happens quite frequently on the Sea of Galilee, in fact. See, the Sea of Galilee, for those of you who don't know this, it is the lowest freshwater lake on the planet the sea of galilee sits 700 feet below sea level and it is surrounded by massive mountains and so what happens at the sea of galilee in a moment's notice the cold air from the mountains blows down meets the warm air around the lake and creates massive storms so much so that if you go there today and you're, you're in a restaurant or eating dinner somewhere along the Sea of Galilee, it will tell you and warn you that, that you need to be careful with your car. If a storm starts to stir, you better move your vehicle. Because by the time dinner's over, your car will be taken away into the Sea of Galilee. So that's what they're experiencing. And so they're facing this massive, incredible storm, water pouring in. And, they, and these guys know they're in trouble but they're also troubled by their inability to do anything about it. Like these are expert fishermen, and there's literally nothing in this moment that they can do about the storm. Like it is overcoming their boat, and they can't do anything about it. They don't have the, in, they don't have the ability to do anything. And what are they going to do, Bail water and just hope it doesn't fill up and sink? I mean, that's where they are. They're sitting there, and they have no way to get out of this storm. But then there's a third thing they're dealing with. And this is the most fascinating one. And they are dealing with this unexpected response of Jesus. In the midst of this chaos, in the midst of this massive storm, in the midst of this boat being tossed back and forth, back and forth, what is Jesus doing? He's sound asleep. Facing imminent death. Because they said, what did they say? We're perishing. Why don't you care? Facing imminent death, Jesus is sound asleep. And here's what we know. We know that Jesus intended to sleep because it says he had a cushion. Like, any time you show up with a pillow, you're planning on taking a nap. Like, every time we go on a vacation and Nicole asks for her pillow to come up front, she's out. She's gone. I know. Listen. If you walk in here with a neck pillow, like you, with that neck pillow, I know, you're not going to make it through the sermon. You've already decided. (laughs) You've decided ahead of time that, man, you're out. You're done. I'm taking a nap. And so Jesus is planning on sleeping, but why? Why is he planning on sleeping in this moment? Remember, why did Mark write this gospel? To show us that Jesus is... Is the Son of God. Jesus created the storm. Jesus knows the storm. He controls the storm. So listen, this is all a setup. This whole scene, this whole story is a setup. Why? Because Jesus got them into this mess in the first place. Have you ever thought about that? It says that Jesus told them, let's go to the other side. Jesus is the one that led them into the storm. He knew it was coming. Why did he know it was coming? Because he's God. He led them into the storm, and they're in the midst of the storm. Why? Because they obeyed him. Have you ever thought about that? Like they obeyed Jesus, and that got him in the storm. In other words, this storm is no accident. This storm is intentional. This storm is purposeful. This storm did not catch Jesus off guard. That's why Jesus is in the stern of the boat, sound asleep. Because there's a principle at work here, and this is this, that storms are necessary for our spiritual development. Storms are necessary for our spiritual growth. Storms are, are part of the process of how you and I grow spiritually. You see, without storms, without setbacks, without difficulties, without trials, you and I can never grow into who God wants us to be. It's impossible. We can't become who God wants us to be without failures, without difficulties, without trials, without storms. And so Jesus places these disciples in the midst of the storm. But here's the reality, and it's true of us. The disciples can't see that. Like, if you're in the middle of a storm right now, and I'm telling you, listen, God uses those storms for your spiritual growth, you're like, yeah, right, whatever. Like, you've lost your mind, Eric. Like, I just want to get out of this storm. I don't want to learn anything from this storm. Just get me out. Well, that's where the disciples are. They're right in the middle of the same thing. They're in the middle of the storm, and they have no way to get out. They don't know what to do, so what do they do? They go up to Jesus, and they start shaking the the pillow, like, wake up. Wake up. And they say, teacher, do you not even care? Do you not care that we are perishing? Do you not care that we are about to die? You ever been there? You're like, Jesus, I am overwhelmed. Why don't you intervene? Jesus, I'm drowning here. Why don't you throw a lifeline? Jesus, why don't you step in and do something about this storm that I'm facing? And we've all done that, right? We've all had those moments where we're just like, Jesus, do something. Wake up. That's what they do disciples are like, Jesus, wake up. We're dying here. Why don't you intervene? And here's what I want you to understand. I want you to understand that fear, that fear, like these disciples experienced, fear of, of them perishing in this storm is simply an interpretation of life. Fear and other emotions are how we interpret life. In this moment, the disciples are interpreting life through the lens of fear. And fear in and of itself, as we're going to discover later on, is not necessarily a bad thing. It's simply an interpretation. So here's an equation for how we we interpret situations in our lives, whether it's storms like the disciples find find themselves in, whether it's storms you're going through right now, and any other situation that you and I find ourselves in. This is the equation for how we interpret life. And it goes like this. We have the situation or the circumstances plus ourselves. And and what that means is our our ability or inability to control it plus God, who I believe God is, and what I believe he's doing, equals our interpretation. So the circumstances, the situation plus ourselves, meaning our ability or inability to control it, plus our view of God equals the interpretation of the situation, the interpretation of the circumstances. And depending on your equation, the results are going to be fear, worry, anxiety. The results are going to be hope, courage, or faith. All depending on that equation and really the 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 crux of the equation is really about your view of god for those of you who are familiar with algebra and can remember it back in high school remember you always had to solve for x you remember that like algebra y'all just solve for x you always got to solve for x well what is x in this equation it's your view of god It's your view of God. Why? Because the situation you're in, you know the situation. That's a known. Your ability to control the situation or not control the situation is a known. How you're feeling in that moment and what you're interpreting it to be is a known. You're either facing fear, worry, anxiety, courage, hope, or faith. Or a list of other things, other emotions, other things. So the X factor in this equation is is how you view God. And your view of him in those moments, in, our, in those circumstances of life, will determine how we interpret what we're going through. So this moment in the boat reveals more about the hearts of the disciples than it does about the heart of the Messiah. This moment and what these disciples are going through reveals more about them Than it does about God. About Jesus. Why? Because their their view of God. That X. Is what determined their fear. So what do you do in the storms? When you face storms in life. How do you interpret them? You know the situation. You know your ability or inability to control it. You know what you're feeling right now. So. What is that? What is or your view of God? What is that view of God? And some of us in this room and watching online, it may not be panic like the disciples are experiencing right now, but if you were honest, you might admit that you worry a whole lot more than a follower of Jesus should ever worry. Or perhaps you're one of those people that are constantly playing what if games. Anybody do that? Like, what if this happens, or what if that happens, or what if what if it goes this way, or what if it goes that way? And you're constantly playing those what if, trying to figure out, trying to find peace somehow in trying to determine what could happen. Or perhaps, maybe for you, that that, that interpretation is doubt. You begin to doubt the goodness of God. Which shows which gives you a view of how you view God, because when things don't work out how you think they should, you begin to doubt Him. Or maybe you're one that's just constantly anxious. I mean, you're living your life on pins and needles, just wondering what may or may not happen around the corner. And we all interpret life in one way or the other. And it's all based on how we view God, which is why this story is so important that we grasp and understand who Jesus is. And that Jesus is God. What I find fascinating in this story is Jesus' response to their question. Like Jesus, uh, the the disciples come to Jesus and they ask, Do you even care? What does Jesus do? He doesn't talk to them, he talks to the waves. And what what is amazing to me, he doesn't tell them, Listen guys, hey, everything's going to be okay. Not in that passage. It's not in that story. He doesn't say, "Guys, just calm down. Everything's going to work out. Everything's going to be okay." No. What does he do? He turns and he talks to the storm. He turns to the thing that is creating chaos in their world. He turns to the to the storm, the chaos that is threatening to uh, to engulf them. And Jesus talks to the storm and he rebukes the wind and he commands the storm. Peace. Be still. And it does. He says, peace, be still. And then the wind ceased and there was a great calm. Here's what's amazing. Not only did the wind stop when he commanded them, but the waves stopped as well. Like what happens when you're up at the lake and there's a big windstorm that comes through? The waves get choppy, but the waves don't stop when the wind stops, right? The waves continue long past the wind stopping. But in this moment, when Jesus commands the storm to stop, all of it stops. The wind and the waves all immediately cease. And it happens all at once in the moment that Jesus speaks to the storm. Then I love what he does next. He turns to the disciples. So he's addressed the storm. Now he's going to turn to the disciples. He goes, "Guys, why are you so afraid? Why are you so scared? Do you, why, why you still have no faith?" And notice the disciples' response. Notice what they say, or notice what the scripture says. They don't say anything. They're, they're actually silent. But it says this: that they were filled with great fear they were filled with great so before jesus rescued them they were they were afraid they had fear after jesus rescues them after he calms the storm now they've got great fear they're more afraid of the rescue than they were of the storm what's mark doing here mark is using a play on words to help us understand the difference between healthy fear and unhealthy fear. When Jesus says to them why are you afraid the word he used there is what we would all think of as fear dread uh, you know fearful being scared but then when he when scripture says that, that when mark says that they were filled with great fear that's actually a different word it's a different word and that word means reverence Respect, awe. What's he saying? He's saying, listen, they were filled with a great reverence for God. They were filled with a great awe of Jesus. That's what he's pointing out. He's saying, listen, their fear has changed from fear of their circumstances to this great reverence of Jesus and who he is which is another principle at work here in this passage. And it's this. The principle is that only when you and I have a deep, glorious, Christ-given, grace-driven awe and fear of God, then we'll be able to face all those other fears that stop us and paralyze us. But it's only when we have This deep reverence and fear of God. See, for the first time in the disciples' lives, for the first time since they followed Jesus, they know in this moment that Jesus is God. You see, here's the the thing you need to understand. Jews in those days believed that only God can control the weather. Only God can control that. And you go through the Old Testament, prophets had the ability to heal people. The disciples in the New Testament had the ability to heal people. They had the ability to cast out demons, which is what Jesus has been doing up until this point. But only God could control the weather. You remember Elijah in the Old Testament? What does it say he does? He prays earnestly, and then the drought comes for three and a half years. Then he prays again after three and a half years, and then God sends the storm. It was God who brought the drought after Elijah's prayer, and it was God who brought the rain after Elijah's prayer. But Jesus doesn't call upon God in this moment. Jesus calms the storm based on his own power, his own strength, his own will. He does it himself. Why? Because he is God Mark 1, 1, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. So when then the disciples ask, who then is this? Who is this? They know. They know that Jesus is God. It is a rhetorical question that they're asking because they know, but they haven't quite figured out. Like they know that he's God, but they're like, this doesn't make sense. And it fills them with great fear, great reverence, great, great awe of God. Why? Because only God can command the weather and it obey. It's a powerful story. But I think there are some implications with this story that you and I need to grasp, that we need to get a hold of in order for us to live this out, in order for us to apply what this text is teaching us. And I think the first thing is this. The first principle is this, that there, are, there is a good kind of fear. There is a good kind of fear. And now a lot of people view the fear of God as archaic. A lot of people view the fear of God as old-timey. A lot of people fear, you view the fear of God as oppressive. And that's not what, that's not what God would want us to do. Because, I mean, oftentimes we think, well, Eric, why can't we just focus on the love of God and not the fear of God? Like, I just want to focus on the love of God. Let's just do that and not focus on the fear of God. But here's the problem. The problem is without the fear, and this is a reverence, this is an awe of God, without a proper awe of God, without a proper fear of God, without a proper reverence for God, we won't find His love and His grace that amazing. Until we grasp who He is and the the lengths that He's gone to save us, We won't won't view His love and His grace as amazing. Anytime, anytime you're in the presence of greatness, a natural response is to have reverence and awe, or as Mark would say in this passage, fear, right? Like anytime you're in the presence. In fact, throughout the scriptures, anytime someone experienced the power and the presence of God, what is their immediate response? Fear. Healthy, God-given, grace-driven fear. One of my favorite stories, one of our favorite examples of this is found in Revelation chapter 1. It's when the Apostle John for the first time sees Jesus after his ascension. So John has this vision of Jesus, and he writes the book of Revelation based on that vision. And so the vision is he sees Jesus on his throne. He sees Jesus in his glory. He sees Jesus in heaven. And for the first time, he sees Jesus, and in verse 7, he responds. But before we get to his response, we need to understand that John and Jesus were BFFs. Go and read the Gospel of John, and how does he describe himself? The one who Jesus loved. That takes a lot of guts, doesn't it? Hey, guys, I'm the one Jesus loved. I mean, he likes y'all. He loves me. That takes a lot of guts, right? But, that, but, that, but that's, not the, that's not what John's actually doing. What he's doing is showing the closeness and the intimacy that the two of them felt and the two of them had. They were, they were, He was in Jesus' inner circle. But listen to what happens when he sees Jesus for the first time in his glory. In Revelation 1, verse 17, I think I said seven earlier, it's verse 17. When I saw him, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. That's the kind of fear of God that we're talking about. That's the kind of reverence, the kind of awe that we're to have of God. But here's the problem. I think we've lost this concept in our churches today. We've lost this idea of reverence and fear, proper fear of God. Why? Because Jesus has become our buddy. He's become our pal. You know, we, I mean, we put pictures in our nurseries of Jesus petting lambs and tossing kids in the air. And we've lost this sense of reverence. We sing these sentimental songs about being in the presence of God, Jesus. Jesus, if I could just be in your presence. And you listen to Christian radio and you could, rep- you could change Jeff to Jesus and the song wouldn't change. Because we've lost this reverence, this fear of of God. Here's the reality, church. If Jesus were to show up in his glory on this stage right now, every single one of us would be just like John, and we would think that we were about to die. And that wouldn't help church attendance at all. (laughs) That's the view of God that we've missed. And here's the other thing. A lot of the reason a lot of the reason you and I are so casual in our obedience to him is because we don't have a proper fear of him. I'll say that again because it's important. The reason so many Christians, including myself, can become so casual in our obedience to him is because we don't have a fear of him. Listen, jesus rebuked the weather and it obeyed he told death and demons to leave and they yielded i mean this is the power of jesus this is who he is he cast out demons and they surrendered he told disease to get out of bodies and it left immediately and listen who are we to disobey him If he can do that, how can we stand before him and say, you know what, yeah, I know you told me to love my neighbor, but yeah, I don't like him. I know you told me to go out and, and make disciples, but I, I'm, I'm worried about what people are going to think. I know you told me to, to be honest at work, but yeah, I'm just going to cut corners. I know you told me that sex is designed for marriage, but I don't really care about your rules, God. How, can, how on earth can we have this mentality that we can just ob- di- obey him and disobey him at our will? It's because we've lost this fear of God. That's why we, he can say, listen, I demand your whole heart. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength. And we say, yeah, maybe. I'll give you part of it, Jesus. No, he demands all of it. And yet we have lost this fear of God to the point where we can say, yeah, I'm going to give you part. I'm not going to give you all. I'm going to give you a portion. I'm going to let you have a piece of my life. No, he wants all of it. He demands all of it. And the fact that we can disobey him and disregard him in that way just shows that we don't have an understanding of who he is. It goes back to that equation. Circumstances plus ourself plus how we view God, who we view him to be, determines how our interpretation of the circumstances and the situations of our life. And when we don't have a proper understanding of who God is, we're going to continually be casual in our obedience to Him. Do you know the one you're disobeying? Do you know the one who commands the winds and the waves and they obey? That is why the disciples had a great fear, a great fear reverence a great awe and you and i should have the same so the first implication is this that there's a good kind of fear and that is it's not a fear of of god going to zap you that's not what we're talking about at all it's not a fear that god's going to look down in heaven he's just waiting on you to screw up so that he can send a lightning bolt and get you that's not what this is saying at all but it's a proper reverence and respect and awe of who he is but there's another piece And that is this, that worship, worship is a mixture of awe and intimacy. Worship is a mixture of awe and intimacy. When you and I see Jesus for who he is, when you and I see his holiness, his perfection, his goodness, his grace, his mercy, when we see him in his perfection, and we see the length, that he went through in order to redeem us from our sin, the result is going to be worship. When we understand the cost that Jesus went through to buy our salvation, when we grasp the terrible price that he had to pay for our sin on the cross, when we understand that Jesus' sacrifice paid that price for our disobedience and the result of that is that our salvation is secured. When we understand this, when we grasp that because of his debt because of the debt that he paid that we are secure within God's love because of his mercy and his grace, when we get that, it's going to move us to worship. But one without the other is spiritual deformity. It's a mixture of both awe and intimacy. Fear and intimacy. You see, fear without intimacy equals no love and no closeness in your relationship with God. Fear without intimacy means God is at a distance. means God is way out there. He's not really concerned about your life. He doesn't really care about what you're going through, which is not true. It's, it's a deformed spirituality. It's a deformed view of, of worship. And because fear without intimacy, it leads to uninspired worship. It leads to ro- robo- robotic, cold relationship with God. It, it eventually leads to legalism where I'm just going to do the rules and do what I need to do so that God doesn't get me so that God doesn't zap me. That's fear without intimacy. Intimacy without fear on the other hand is sentimentality without depth. Fear without intimacy leads to lazy casual casual what leads us to be lazy and casual in our obedience. Intimacy without fear, creates areas of compromise in our lives. And that is why worship is a mixture of both fear, healthy fear, reverence, awe of Jesus, and intimacy with Him. Because one without the other is going to lead you down a path that none of us want to go, that none of us want to follow. Third thing is this. Those who fear Jesus need not fear anything else those who fear jesus need not fear anything else when you and i realize how powerful jesus is when you and i understand that he's in the boat with you right now no matter what you're going through no matter what you're facing jesus is right there with you you won't be afraid of anything jesus rebuked the storm but he also rebuked the disciples didn't he he rebukes a storm and then he rebukes the disciples. Why? Because worry and fear in our lives comes from forgetting the power of Jesus over the storm and, the, and doubting the commitment of Jesus to us in the storm. That's what happens. And here's what, here's what I want you to understand. In whatever storm you're going through, Jesus is always going to do one of two things. He's going to show off his power. He's going to show off his power by delivering you from the storm or he's going to show off his power by his ability to keep you in the storm. In every storm you face, that's what he's going to do. He's going to show off his power by delivering you from it or he's going to show off his power by sustaining you in it. Sometimes Jesus is going to look at the storm and say, peace, be still. Other times, he's going to look at you and say, peace, be still. That's what he does in every storm. Every storm you and I face, he looks at us and says, looks at the storm or looks at us and says, peace, be still. And listen, the peace that passes all understanding the peace that passes all understanding is not always, in fact, it's often, it's it's actually, it's not usually Jesus calming the storm. Usually the peace that passes all understanding is his sustaining presence with us in the storm. That's where Jesus' peace comes. And so the question that leaves us with, with is this. How do we know? that Jesus will sustain us in the storm. Like, how can we know that? How can we have faith in that? How can we trust that? In order for us to trust that, in order for us to believe that, we have to go back to the story of Jonah in order to see that Jesus is with us right in the middle of the storm. Because think about it. Jonah and Jesus were both prophets. Jonah and Jesus were both sent to carry God's love to the Gentiles, to the world. Jonah and Jesus both fell asleep in the middle of a storm. Jonah and Jesus both stopped the storm by their actions. They were both woken up by scared sailors. Don't you even care? Go read the story of Jonah. It mirrors this picture, this this story of Jesus right here. But here's where it gets interesting. Jonah calmed the storm. By plunging himself into it. Jesus calmed the storm by speaking directly to it. But, there will come a day where Jesus will plunge himself into our storm. What do I mean by that? See, throughout scripture, storms and really the sea is a picture of God's wrath. That's why in the book of Revelation it says there will be no sea. Why? Because God's wrath will have been taken care of through the sacrifice of Jesus. God's wrath will no longer be present in heaven, in eternity. And so it says that there will be no sea in in heaven. Why? Because the sea represents God's wrath. So on the cross, get this, on the cross, Jesus plunged himself into the sea of God's wrath for you and for I. And on the cross, Jesus, the Son of God, took upon God's wrath. And he was buried in the sea of God's wrath for three days. And three days later, he, he raises from the grave. Just like Jonah in the belly of that fish, three days spit out onto the side. And he did that, Jesus did that, so that he could take all of God's wrath all the seed of God's wrath upon Himself, all the seed of God's wrath that you and I deserve, Jesus took that upon Himself in order to redeem us, in order to save us, in order to to provide eternal life for us. And here's the thing, if Jesus cared about us then, if Jesus cared about us and, and didn't forsake us then, when all of God's wrath were put upon His shoulders, if He did not forsake us then, if He did not forget us then, we can rest assured that He will not forget us and He will not forsake us now. Because He's already taken God's wrath upon Himself. You see, the cross was Jesus' great and final demonstration of His love and commitment to us. The cross shows us and proves to us God's love. For God demonstrated His love for us. That in this, while you and I were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so the cross proves that Jesus will never leave us, never forsake us. And if we can be sure that He did that, then we can certainly know Him And trust Him regardless of the circumstances we face. The question that we have to ask ourselves is: Have you put your trust in Him? Have you placed your faith in Him? Do you have a proper fear of Him? A reverence for Him? Is your worship a mixture of awe and intimacy? And have you committed your life to follow him? Let's pray. So Father, I pray this morning that if anyone is here and they've never placed their faith and trust in in Jesus Christ, Lord, I pray that today would be the day. And Lord, that they would see for the first time this immense love that you have for us. That you were willing to take upon yourself the wrath of God. That you plunged yourself into that sea on our behalf. There's nothing that we can do to earn salvation. There's nothing that we can do to to earn your grace. You offer it freely and you did that because of your immense love for us. And Lord, I pray that today... That anyone here, whether they're in this room or online, that have never placed their trust and faith in you, that today would be the day that they say, You know what, Jesus, I believe. I believe that your sacrifice on the cross paid the penalty for my sin. And I commit my life to follow you. And if that's your desire this morning, my prayer for you is that you would talk to the person that invited you. Or you would talk to one of us at the end of the service. And just express your love and and gratitude for Jesus. So Father, for those of us that are your followers, that, that do know you, Lord, I pray that our worship of you would be this mixture of awe and intimacy. That we would have this deep and reverent fear of you for who you are. We would no longer be casual in our obedience. But we would follow you wholeheartedly. And that we would have this intimacy with you, knowing that you did it all for us because you desire a relationship with us. And it is through the cross, Jesus, that you made peace with God on our behalf so that we can know you. We can be intimate with you. That we can have fellowship with you. Jesus, never, let us never lose sight. Let us never take that for granted. And we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.